Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It's another day, another disappointment from the leader of the free world, I'm sorry to tell you. President Joe Biden last night blamed everyone, aside from himself, in an address from the White House as Afghanistan falls further into the grip of the Taliban and careens hopelessly back to the Middle Ages. As the scenes from Kabul airport yesterday proved, there are thousands of Afghan nationals who are desperate to leave the country before it is turned into an Islamic state ruled by Sharia law, where universities are closed, where women aren't allowed out on the streets, and dissenters are executed. You saw people clinging on to the wings of aircraft. You saw people clinging on uh, to the wheels of an aircraft as it was taking off yesterday from Kabul airport. Thousands of people running headlong for planes, trying to get on them, trying to get uh, desperately get away uh, from what is bound to be carnage, as it's been described this morning in many of the newspapers. Make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, this new version of the Taliban is no better than the last one, and many believe it may actually be worse. Better equipped, better trained, better financed than anything than the West can offer, but no less bloodthirsty and no less fascist either. We've got a host of guests this morning to help you to figure out just what happens next as more American and British troops head over there to rescue our own nationals who absolutely do need rescuing before something terrible happens. I'm very grateful that so far there hasn't been anything making a turn for the worse, but you have to wonder with all of these Kalashnikovs, with all of these young men pointing guns at people, there don't seem to be any women on the streets at all. You do have to worry that there might be danger out there for British citizens and also for US citizens as well. Of course, as ever, uh, we will be welcoming Afghan refugees into this country. Uh, already Canada has said they'll take 20,000. Many of you were on the phones yesterday saying we're not sure that we've got room uh, for any more refugees. But as ever, we do want to hear your side of the story. 0344 499 1000. Up first, we're talking to former Minister for International Security Strategy, Sir Gerard Howarth. Uh, we're also joined by Middle East Specialist and retired British Army Officer, Sir Simon Mayle, with his take on what happens next and how we got here, particularly in the Gulf region with all the various talks that were going on. And Donna Harvey will check in from the USA where she'll tell us exactly how that Biden speech went down in the domestic market last night. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be finding out just why Boris Johnson wants us to install hydrogen heating systems in our homes at a cost of thousands of pounds. And we've got Angela Levin, our favourite royal correspondent, with the latest from the Prince Andrew files. It's not looking good for the Queen's favourite son. And as if that's not enough, we'll hear from Kevin O'Sullivan too with his view on poor BBC News reader Hugh Edwards, who's had to take, let's face it, a massive pay cut, £170,000. That's the cut. That's not how much he makes. That's the pay cut, for heaven's sake. Uh, he says he's thinking of retiring. Bless him. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Now, of course, on television, it is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 
on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Go and find it on the App Store and download talkradio.tv uh, where you can watch us as well as listening to us. Let's talk to Sir Gerald Howarth, Conservative MP for Aldershot, former Defence Minister, of course, as well. Uh, he was uh, in all sorts of uh, very important positions while he was an MP, uh, now works mostly in the defence business. Sir Gerald, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike, and also very good morning to my great friend, Sir Simon Mayle. Yes, morning, he's Simon. a terrific man. I'm looking forward to talking to him because I've been reading his book and, and he's got an awful lot of interesting antecedents to explain to us about how we sort of got here because I don't know whether you were able to watch Joe Biden's speech last night, but I thought um, I thought he was going to start blaming me by the end of it. I mean, he literally blamed everybody else but himself for the terrible situation that we see currently today in Kabul. Yes, I think you're absolutely right that uh, whilst it's entirely true what the president was saying yesterday, that uh, there has been a, an appalling failure of the Afghan government, despite all the training and kits that we gave Afghan forces and which I saw uh, in, in operation for myself during uh, some of my six visits to Afghanistan. Uh, nevertheless, this is a humiliation for mm. the United States and for the United Kingdom to a lesser extent. And there will be consequences. First, of course, is that it will diminish the influence of the United States and the West more generally around the world at a time when the world is in a state of turbulence. And I say that because uh, some of your listeners may remember, Mike, that during the, at the end of the Falklands campaign, Britain's estimation in the world shot up because of what we did militarily yes. to recover the Falkland Islands. But secondly, it will embolden uh, our enemies and our opponents. And we think at the moment of the difficulties that people in Hong Kong are facing, what will this do to the, the Chinese Communist Party? And it will present the opportunity for those, thirdly, that, that will present the opportunity for the Islamic extremists uh, to go back to uh, Afghanistan, maybe even welcome back to Afghanistan. So the objective of the mission in 2001 will have been completely overturned. Yes, it seems incredible, doesn't it? I mean, I sort of have some sympathy with a political decision that, you know, you can't continually just fight a war. And it has become America's longest running war, hasn't it? You can't continue to fight a war, as Joe Biden says, that even the Afghan army doesn't really seem willing yes, to but fight. Mike Mike, we were not fighting the war at the end. What we were doing at the end was, and uh, uh, General Sir Simon will be more eloquent on this than I, um, the British contribution was about 750 uh, military personnel helping to train the Afghan army, the uh, armed forces. The Americans doing the same with about, I think, three and a half, four thousand mm. uh, people. The effect of that had been to keep these barbarians at bay. Mm. And the Americans have been in Korea for something like 70 years. We've been in Cyprus for, for decades. And uh, at this very limited cost, we could have kept the process of, of helping the Afghan people to build themselves a more civilised society. We could have kept that going. Because certainly whatever um, sort of um, equation they worked out in the White House and presumably also in Downing Street when they went along with it uh, was completely and utterly based on all manner of falsehoods, because surely they would not have done what they did if they knew this would be the result. I I cannot imagine that they would. And I know that ministers um, uh, cannot understand how the United States has got us into this position. And the truth is, of course, that we are uh, a, a, an, an adjunct to the United States effort. Uh, our military forces are not large enough, nor could they be large enough, given the size of the United Kingdom and our budget by comparison with that of the United States. 
But I think the message here is very, very clear to the people of Britain. This is becoming a very um, destabilized world. Mm. And military force and military uh, capability matters. Our armed forces are too small, pretty well on all fronts. And despite the uh, very substantial uplift that uh, the Prime Minister agreed a few months ago, the, the fact is we do not have enough ships, we do not have enough men on the ground, and probably not enough aircraft either. Uh, but I think that the effort we're making in the asymmetric warfare, dealing with cyber and all that, that's good. Mm. But this is a message for all of us in the West. We face a very serious threat from Islamic extremists uh, around the world. Yes, because we've seen, and it may be that these are soldiers rather than leaders of the Taliban, but we've certainly seen people speaking uh, in Kabul over recent days saying, you know, we wish to see Sharia law uh, enforced in Afghanistan, and we also wish to see it enforced around the rest of the world. So it doesn't end here, does it? It doesn't end here. It's a bit like communism. Communism was, uh, was for compulsory export. And uh, people like these... Uh, uh, these uh, uh, Taliban have a similar philosophy that they want a the mandatory export of uh, Sharia law uh, around the world. Indeed, mm. we even see it in our own country. We see uh, certain uh, Islamic groups in our own country, in the United Kingdom, wishing to uh, overthrow our own legal system. Of course, Judeo-Christian legal system established over a thousand years, and they want that replaced by uh, Sharia law. Mm. We face a, a pretty existential threat, I am afraid. Yes. Well, I mean, I had a caller yesterday uh, from Leicester uh, who couldn't bring himself to say that he did not support the Taliban. I asked him about six times and I said, you know, what's your view of the Taliban? He couldn't give it to me. Uh, I said, do you support the Taliban? And he kind of hummed and hard and said, well, not in the way that they're doing it at the moment. But was clearly, you know, in favour of some form of Islamic um, society. And you can't live, surely, in this country and think that that is the way to go. No, well, funnily enough, um, that was the view of uh, the president of Egypt, whom I have met a, a, a few times in my capacity, as I then was chairman of the all-party Egypt mm. group. And uh, he said, if you go to the United Kingdom and uh, France and Germany, uh, you accept their customs. And this is the irony. Here we have... Uh, probably as we speak, you and I, Mike, at the moment, we've probably got um, dinghies crossing the channel from France at the moment, full of young young men uh, of Islamic uh, uh, belief, desperate to come to the United Kingdom. We give them asylum. Once they come here, they want to tell us to change our laws. Mm. Unlike previous waves of, uh, of migrants, and I, I single out particularly the Jewish community, they never asked us to change any of our laws. All they wanted was freedom of religion. Mm. And I do think this, again, it reinforces my point. We face an existential threat to our society in the United Kingdom. And, uh, and, and it's been aided and abetted by the woke brigade and the liberal left in this country. Yeah. Uh, who, have all gone, who have all gone very quiet, strangely enough, on women's rights in Afghanistan. Uh, absolutely. And uh, just to you know, tell you something, I, I went to a school in Kabul on one of my visits. And it was really quite interesting to see the... Um, uh, the young people there were they were every bit as aspirational as our own people they were working with uh, laptops and so on uh, very very enthusiastic about getting a proper education our armed forces did a huge amount to try to help where they could and my son was telling me he has a friend in hong kong uh, who uh, set up a, a charity military guy um, set up a charity uh, free free to run and this was designed to help young afghan girls get into sport uh, we weren't there we were not there to change the culture 
of Afghan society. We were there to make sure the streets of Britain were made safe. Yes. That was the purpose of the mission. But having done that, we couldn't then allow it to fall back again. And so the effort of our armed forces, who anybody who's met them, particularly out in the field, can only have the most uh, amazing admiration mm. for what they do. And the work they do with the community, that that they're building links, particularly British forces, were really, really good at it. And um, and, and here's just one example of something that uh, that the British Armed Forces did that's free to run. And what's going to happen now? Are they, these girls going to be told they've got to wear the, the burqa, told they've got to stay indoors, told they've got to marry, mm. in inverted commas, some Afghan um, uh, Taliban militant, or maybe not even an Afghan? Uh, one of the questions we do not know, and maybe Sir Simon can answer this one, uh, the question is uh, how much outside influence uh, has been brought to bear in support of this Taliban uh, mission? Yes. Have the Iranians been in there? Have the Chinese uh, uh, been in there? Have the Pakistanis been helping them? Uh, because um, uh, if they have, then there are wider international political implications yes. for the United Kingdom. And I take it you, like me, do not buy this version of events, which is that the Taliban has somehow become a bit more moderate and that they are willing to run the country in a more so-called democratic way. But as far as I can see, it's the same old uh, crowd that have rushed in and occupied the presidential palace. You see no footage anymore of any women. I mean, those scenes from the airport yesterday, there were thousands of men running alongside an aeroplane trying to get on it. I didn't see any women at all. No. Uh, the, 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 the answer to that question is, of course, we do not know. And one of the questions that I think... Uh, we need to consider is to what extent the changes that we have helped the Afghans in their own society uh, to make, to what ex extent those have become embedded, to what extent will there be a rejection of, uh, uh, of, of uh, vicious plans by the Taliban to revert to where they were uh, 20 years ago. I heard on the radio this morning on a, another station so don't know how as reliable as it is the Independent Republic of... Well, obviously uh, not quite as high, high standard, obviously, Sir Gerald. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I heard that the Taliban were saying that uh, uh, government officials will be um, uh, given an amnesty because obviously they want the country to be uh, able to be run. It's perhaps a mistake we made in Iraq and mm. not allowing the Iraqis to, uh, to carry on. Uh, but how long will that last for? Well, that, that is the problem. I mean, we were already seeing yesterday, um, I, certainly I saw some footage of um, one of the uh, members of the Northern Alliance. I think his father was, was killed, but he's left the, the city of Kabul supposedly to perhaps go and form another a branch of the Northern Alliance to come back and fight the Taliban. So it might not even be over yet. Oh, indeed. No, I think there's, uh, there's every prospect that, uh, um, that, 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 that the civil war uh, will resume. Um, to the extent that it um, never went away. Um, but we did, as we have so often done uh, in history, we, we've held the ring mm. uh, and uh, we've enabled some of those changes to take place. And, and I, I gather we've, we've cleared something like 8 million uh, landmines, many of which were left by the, <clears throat> the Taliban or the, or the Russians, um, 10 million children educated, and we have clearly helped the creation of some uh, institutional uh, structures in the country uh, and the kind of charity like mm. the one I mentioned, we've done that. But how how enduring this will be, of course, is a question that neither you nor I can answer this morning. No, quite. And I suppose there would be at some point, though, Sir Gerald, would there not be a question of how sustainable it is to maintain a presence in a country 
that if you leave it falls into rack and ruin and becomes a kind of basket case and, and a failed state because it's, it's it's not really i think a lot of members of the electorate would say it's not really our job to support nations that can't support themselves is it because otherwise we'd be very busy in lots of parts of the world no it's not which is why i come back to my point about what we've been doing in uh, in recent years uh we've uh, we uh, david cameron when, when he was prime minister uh, and i was indeed a, a minister at the mod uh, at that time, uh, he concluded that we should end combat operations by the end of 2014. So our presence in the country since then has been very, very much on the, the, the training side of things. Uh, whilst we lost 454 members of our armed forces during that phase of the campaign, and we all remember them. And that, you know, I, I, I was as moved as um, as the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace by. Uh, what is going on hmm. after all that we that, that our armed forces have done and the sacrifice of, of blood and treasure hmm. um, but uh, the question now is uh, you know could well it's, it, it's too late now but I think we we could have stayed there with a minimal presence helped the rebuilding not there to nation build but help the Afghans themselves to rebuild uh, and perhaps to have tried to do something about corruption but I, I fear that corruption is endemic in uh, in that part of the world and as we all know britain's record since 1842 has not been a successful one in afghanistan it really has not so gerald do stay with us please we're just going to stop for a moment uh, to pay the bills we'll be back very shortly so gerald howarth he's uh, a former conservative mp of course former defense minister as well we want to talk to him about where we do go from here and whether we can extricate um, people from uh, afghanistan without actually harming the state of Britain, because that is also something that we need to think about. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Sir Gerald Howarth, former Defence Minister, former Conservative MP, of course, as well. Let's have a listen uh, to some of what Joe Biden said last night in the White House. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency. But I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. Joe Biden there speaking at uh, the White House, telling everyone that wished to hear that nothing that happened in Afghanistan was anything really to do with him, and it wasn't his fault, and he was quite happy to stand by it uh, and defend what he did, and he had no regrets, which I think is rather unfortunate considering what might be going to happen over the course of the next few days. So, Gerald, um, one of the things I did want to ask you was, you know, obviously, as the dust will begin to settle... Um, 
The question for Boris Johnson, and we've got parliamentary session tomorrow, is what does he do now? Because I'm not sure that he knows what to do. Well, I think the truth is that not many of us uh, know uh, what can be done. The fact is that uh, uh, the Taliban uh, have uh, assumed complete control of the country. You mentioned the Northern Alliance. We do not know what forces might regroup uh, within the country. Uh, we are pretty well powerless. I think the only thing we can do is to concentrate on trying to rescue some of those who are helpful to us. I know that many of our veterans feel very passionate, passionately about this, but obviously we also have to be careful that we're getting the right people, that, um, that we're not getting people who are actually closet, um, closet Taliban. So it's a, 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 a pretty severe challenge for the, the Home Secretary and her team. Uh, but the other thing we can try to do is perhaps, as um, uh, one commentator suggested, is uh, invoke uh, our close association with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and get them to uh, exert whatever influence uh, they are able to to, uh, to bring to that country, uh, as well as uh, perhaps one or two. But I think the idea that we might uh, join forces with the Russians and the uh, and the Chinese Communist Party is uh, probably a, a, a forlorn hope. I yes. don't think they're interested in helping us, uh, despite the fact that the uh, the Russians do actually have an interest. Because if uh, if, if the Taliban spread further north to uh, Uzbekistan and uh, Kajikistan and up there, then I think that there is a uh, uh, there will be problems for uh, for Russia itself. Yes, I think that is the worry, isn't it? Because in addition to the kind of humanitarian crisis and the possible, you know, refugee surge that will that will occur, it is a very, very delicate region. And there are nuclear weapons knocking around. China um, is kind of hovering about, as, as is Pakistan, as is the Soviet, uh, former Soviet Union, and as is Iran, really. Uh, absolutely. And uh, we know that uh, the, the Iranians are driven by... Uh, 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 a, a, an ideology which is not that dissimilar from uh, uh, from the Taliban, uh, and uh, we also, of course, know that uh, Pakistan has had a very ambivalent relationship uh, with uh, with uh, with Afghanistan and with us, because, of course, that 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 border territory between uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan is only a line on the map drawn in the uh, uh, in the 19th century then mm. it really doesn't mean anything in terms of um, tribal allegiances so uh, that is a challenge and i think the the question is you know what will the uh, what will the uh, the chinese do uh, but I, I the idea that somehow we're going to you know have a a meaningful discussion in the United Nations. I'm afraid my personal view is that that is completely it for the birds. Well, do you know what? I watched the UN session yesterday and just thought to myself, you know, the United Nations has always been to me much, pretty much of an irrelevance, but it's even more irrelevant now than I thought it could ever be. They seem to spend their entire time now uh, pretending to rescue people in far-flung parts of the world. Somebody showed me a picture the other day of their headquarters in Addis Ababa. It's about the size of the Pentagon. And you're kind of going, what the hell are they doing? Um, they seem more interested in climate change now than actually helping nations to uh, repair themselves after war zones. Yes, and they're hobbled by the fact that the um, uh, two critical members of the, um, uh, of the United Nations uh, Security Council, two of the permanent members, of course, we're one of them with the United States and France, with the other two are, are Russia and China. Mm. And anything which um, destabilizes us uh, will be supported by... Uh, at least one, if not both, those two countries. Uh, so the United Nations uh, is is completely toothless. But 
you know, there is no point in sitting here wringing our hands and saying, oh, no, we're going to demand that the Taliban should respect women's rights. They couldn't give a toss. Right. Interested. Right. Uh, they will pursue their Sharia uh, and their, their extreme Islamic agenda. Um, and um, they will be completely emboldened uh, by the failure of the West uh, to uh, uh, to stem their advance. But I do want that. I think it's very important that we, we challenge something that President Biden said about fighting a war that war fighting was over mm. they were there to defend themselves yes but they were there in a training role they were not there in a war fighting role we had not been in helmand now for um uh, for getting on for seven years right. so the idea that except of course uh, uh, aid agencies and 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 people like that but uh, british soldiers have, have not been there they've been at the sandhurst uh, uh, in the sand academy and so um, that war fighting um, era was over. The parallel, in my view, as I said a bit earlier, is much more with Korea, where the United States has a, a substantial force and which arguably has ensured uh, that the nutters on the other side uh, of the parallel, the North Koreans in Pyongyang with uh, Rocket Man, uh, that they have been restrained by the presence of the of the United States where not a single life has been lost. Right. I think that is a much more accurate parallel and for the United Kingdom. It is our perhaps our role in Cyprus, which is uh, uh, is more um, uh, appropriate. Mm. Can you not just come back and get back into government, Sir Gerald? I mean, I haven't heard so much common sense for a long time. Um, well, if I can just say, Mike, it's very, very kind of you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm actually, despite your very kind uh, strap there, I actually left the House of Commons in 2017. Yes. No, um, I do know uh, that. Um, but they just uh, like calling you I an had, MP. I don't know why I that handed, is. I handed over to my, uh, my my son-in-law, who's my local member of parliament here in Suffolk. Not that I was a Suffolk MP. I had the privilege of representing the home of the British Army in Aldershot and the birthplace yes. of British Aviation in Farnborough. But no, um, I, I think that um, uh, you know I do have the freedom to, to, to speak my mind um, being outside the House. Um, but I keep in close touch with my colleagues and I do not envy them the task. No. Um, the, 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 the defence secretary in particular, uh, I know that he feels this uh, acutely. But what could we do? The, the, the Americans basically deserted the field, despite what the president said last night. The Americans deserted the field. And there is a massive, massive lesson for all of us in that, because we are we have been looking since the end of the Second World War, we've been looking to the Americans uh, for leadership in helping to contain trouble spots around the world and in, in helping to preserve peace around the mm. world, not least in Europe with their massive presence uh, in uh, military presence in Europe ag um, against the Soviet Union. Uh, can we rely on the United States now? You know, I don't think we can. No, uh, I'm, I'm, can. I'm, I don't think we can either. I'm going to leave. And also, we've got, can I just say, Mike, with this sure. other thing? We have a massive opportunity by uh, liberating ourselves uh, from this sclerotic, defunct 1950s construct called uh, the European Union. We have uh, released ourselves to enable us to, to return to our traditional role in the world, which was to build alliances and to... Uh, and to help direct, we're, we've, we've, we've got a massive opportunity. The Americans, I don't think, un understand history as we do. I think we've tended to lose a bit of our understanding of history, but I think we've got a great opportunity for international leadership. It is up to Boris Johnson and the team now to grasp that opportunity and take Britain forward and help 
to help uh, to fashion a world uh, which is safer and better for us yes all. i think you're absolutely right so gerald great to talk to you i'll leave you with this thought from tracy who sent a tweet in to say in the 1980s when he was our mp uh, sir gerald took us very kindly as a group from school to the house of commons which at the time was just inspirational when mps were part of the community they represented seems like a long time ago there you go very nice. Lovely to talk to you. So Gerald Howarth there, not an MP anymore, was MP for Aldershot, former Defence Minister, former um, International um, uh, Defence Coordinator as well. Lots of uh, common sense from him. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, uh, we're going to talk about something slightly different uh, because it's time to discuss energy and the green agenda because of course Boris Johnson now has announced or will announce later on today uh, that he wants to bring in some kind of subsidy scheme to help fund its ambition to produce five gigawatts of hydrogen for use in heavy industry transport and home heating by 2030. Now of course you know what this means. It means that you're going to be charged a bucket load more money uh, and you're going to have a heating bill that ranges into the thousands instead of into the hundreds. Let's talk now uh, to Andrew Montford from the Global Warming Policy Forum to find out what it's all about. Um, Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I've heard it all now. I mean, we've been told uh, for the last few weeks that it's all about, you know, these special um, heating systems that we're going to have to put in. We're going to rip out the old gas boilers. We're going to put these other heating systems in. This is something completely different, isn't it? This hydrogen idea. Um, And they only really want to put it into 67,000 homes, which is apparently just 0.2% of the domestic heating demand. Yeah, I think... The problem that they always run into on all these things related to um, heating homes is that the expense is enormous. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we had we had um, um, a lot of interest in heat pumps, which where the kit is extremely expensive. The, the issue with hydrogen is that the, the um, is is the, the the fuel is really expensive. In fact, um, a hydrogen boiler is not terribly different to a gas boiler, so you can probably put. Uh, hydrogen boilers into homes relatively cheaply but the issue comes when you're paying a bill Um, so uh, the government seems to be hoping that it's going to get uh, the hydrogen from um, electrolyzing water they're going to split water into hydrogen and oxygen and they're going to use electricity from offshore wind farms the problem with that is that the electricity from offshore wind farms is really expensive so um, by the time you get the hydrogen out at the end of the process, you've wasted a load of that already very expensive electricity. And the energy is absurdly expensive. It's probably four times the, um, the cost of natural gas. So if you can imagine quadrupling your, your um, gas bill, your heating bill, that's where that, that route would take you. It's rather scary. It really is, because unfortunately for those of us who are going to be landed with this kind of uh, stuff and all the bills that are going to uh, follow from it, um, nobody really asked anybody in the electorate. You know, they always say, oh, yes, but we told you we were going to make the economy more green. Yeah, but you didn't actually explain it uh, in a manifesto in which you said this will now cost you upwards of £2,000 a year or your heating bills, as they're about to do in October, are going to jump by 30% because we're giving you all these kind of green subsidies. Yeah, it, to be fair, it's not just the green subsidies. The price of natural gas um, has gone up sharply um, uh, in the last few months. Um, we can perhaps um, still point the finger at the green agenda, though, and say, well, if we had a frack for um, natural gas in the UK, then gas prices would be a lot lower. Um, this is, if you like, the, the political issue 
um, is now that the easy steps on the green agenda, the net zero agenda, have been taken. Everything now is very, very difficult and is very, very expensive. And it, it will become politically poisonous for the Conservative Party. Anything they try to do now is going to lead to very, very large bills for the man on the street. And that is not um, a recipe for political success. Yes. And also, where does the government get off thinking that ordinary citizens and, and homeowners um, and people who live uh, in residential areas should be somehow subsidising big business? Because that's what they're effectively asking them to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's not only um, subsidising big business, it's subsidising wealthy people. This is actually, all these, these issues um, seem to end up with the rich virtue signalling environmentalists being subsidised yeah. by the man in the street who probably you know, has you know, more pressing concerns <laughs> than what the weather's going to be like in 2050. Right. Um, so your, your electric car subsidies, you know, that, that's, that's thousands of pounds a time. Who's buying electric cars? Well, it's, it's, it's the wealthy environmentalists. Right. Um, heat pump grants, who's putting in heat pumps? Well, it's going to be the wealthy environmentalists again. So it's the poor subsidising the rich. Yes, um, because that's the is, other problem. You would have thought the Conservatives had learnt that lesson, that that wasn't a good, a good political step to take. No, you would, you would have thought so, because I had a call from uh, somebody in Hastings the other day who said, look, you know, there's absolutely no way that most of the uh, buildings in Hastings, which are multi-occupancy, old-fashioned sort of Victorian terraces, can ever have a heat pump installed per apartment, because you just can't... You don't have the space for it. You don't have the room to put the huge kind of um, you know, unit in the garage because you don't have a garage. You don't have a garden, so you can't put the thing in, in under the soil in the garden. So what's supposed to happen to them? Yeah, I mean, they talk about district heating um, as a possibility, but I mean, there are other issues with district heating. But yeah, once you're in a Victorian terrace or a Victorian house full stop, um, heat pumps are probably not going to work because um, uh, you essentially have to upgrade the the standard of insulation so much that um you know you would you would be it would involve ripping out the interiors of all of the house completely so we're talking tens of thousands of pounds in capital costs to get that done i suppose the, the, the one advantage of, of hydrogen which you know seems to be the latest wheeze is is that at least you probably wouldn't have to do that um but um as i said before it's 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 um it's still going to be extraordinarily expensive. Yes, it absolutely is. And, and as far as, um, you know, the build-up to um, COP26, as it's being called, goes, I mean, I suppose we're going to see more and more of this nonsense because it appears to me that Boris Johnson is trying to kind of impress his fellow world leaders with all of his great initiatives without actually giving a hoot about the people who are going to be paying for it. Yeah, I think, I think Boris Johnson does want to, want, want to be seen to be leading on this issue um, at the moment, I think it will be quite interesting to see what happens after COP26, whether whether he then um, drops the subject and, and starts trying to move on to um, um, perhaps the more pressing issues of things like the economy. Uh, in, in the wake of, of um, uh, COVID, I mean, the, the, the country is in financial dire straits and those problems need to be addressed. And throwing money at uh, 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 heat pumps or, or hydrogen boilers or whatever is, is probably not a very sensible idea at the moment. Well, no, you wouldn't have thought so. Um, but as far as the um, the bill is concerned for all of this, I don't think Mrs Johnson uh, is too bothered about that because she seems to be the one with the green agenda and she seems to be the one who's got all the influence on the Prime Minister. 
Yeah, I think the Prime Minister is surrounded by um, people who are um, on board with the net zero agenda and uh, perhaps don't have to worry too much about whether they will be able to um, um, afford afford the bills. I mean, um, I'm, I'm sure to, to, to um, you know, the goldsmiths or somebody, Zach Goldsmith, um, you know, uh, a heat pump or a hydrogen boiler or, or a £4,000 heating bill, you know, these are, these are not major problems. Right. But uh, obviously there are a lot of people in the country to whom that is a major problem. And a lot of Conservative MPs have, you know, I think are starting to realise that their constituents can't afford the, these bills either. Even in, even in, in wealthy uh, Conservative constituencies, um, there are a lot of people who can't afford those bills. The, the people that the Conservatives, uh, yeah, the Red Wall, um, the, 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 the new seats they've won, they've won a lot of new voters um, by offering an alternative to Labour. Um, and I think they risk turning all those people um, against them. Yes, I think that's very much what they're risking. And that's the interesting question which we'll be discovering uh, over the course of the next few months and years, exactly how much that has changed. Andrew Montford, the Global Warming Policy Forum, talking, of course, about uh, energy bills soaring once more. That's all they ever do. Energy bills soaring. We last week were complaining about Ofgem uh, and the guy uh, who's in charge of Ofgem. He gets paid something like £330,000 a year, took himself a £15,000 bonus. He's supposed to protect the consumer. It turns out that he's not protecting the consumer. Uh, he's allowing energy companies to just keep putting the bills up and up and up. And come October, you could be paying somewhere between 10 and 30% more for your energy uh, than you are now. And then it's going to get worse because you're going to be asked to subsidise industry so that they can use hydrogen so that you can pay for it it's great isn't it what marvelous conservative policy that is unbelievable absolutely ridiculous 0344 499 1000 coming up in the next hour we're going to talk uh, to sir simon mayo retired british army officer middle east expert um, and he's also a former uh, ministry of defense specialist as well he's going to be telling us how the taliban came to be how they managed to get subsidized how the gulf is so important to them and what happens next this is talk radio it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, uh, talk to Sir Simon Mayle. Sir Simon, very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed. I've been looking forward to talking to you, Sir Simon, because I know you've, you've got a great deal of knowledge about the uh, the Gulf region in particular. And I was asking yesterday uh, one of the uh, MPs, Tobias Elwood, that I was talking to, about the role that Qatar has played in this whole kind of game. Because it seems as though Qatar has not only been setting up sort of supposed um, conversations, peace talks and negotiations, etc., but they've also been accused by other states in the Gulf of sort of backing terrorists and backing the Taliban. What's your understanding of their role? Well, on the one hand, Mike, it's been very helpful. Uh, it has provided a, a, a forum uh, under which there was supposed to have been a, a, a dialogue between the Americans and the Taliban. Um, admittedly, when it started under Trump, it didn't include the Afghan government, uh, surprisingly. Uh, interestingly, the head of CENTCOM met the Taliban leadership in Qatar the other day. Uh, on the other side, of course, the uh, Qataris have been uh, seen as being complicit with certain support for the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, but, of course, some of the accusations laid against the Qataris are by the Saudis and the UAE, who have always been very angry about the role of Al Jazeera in that mm. part of the world. So, in many ways, they do run with the fox, hunt with the hounds, uh, up to a point. Um, but they're a small country, powerful because they've got a lot of money. Uh, but not necessarily in the clout they've got. Mm. But they, they, they've got, they, they, they have a role to play, and they certainly have some influence there. But nothing, dare I say, compared to what Saudi Arabia had some decades ago, or to the extent what Pakistan does now. Yes. Yeah, because the Saudis' um, um, sort of operations have always been slightly murky, haven't they? And I mean, you, you'll probably be one of the people that knows most about this. But, but you know, when 9-11 happened, you know, Saudi was more or less the one country that... That, that held the sort of common denominator to all of the plane hijackers, didn't it? It is. Uh, there were 15 out of 19 were, uh, you know, or, or originated inside, although a lot of them down from the, the south, uh, the, the Yemenis border. Um, Saudi, of course, very firmly backed the Mujahideen uh, with both ideology, weaponry, money, uh, and ideological support during the, uh, the fight against the Soviet Union, mm. which, of course, came back to absolutely bite them, because although we associate... Uh, Osama bin Laden with 9-11. Osama bin Laden's primary objective was to overthrow the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia so grew this monster uh, and then have spent the last 20 years to an extent fighting back. But wh whether it's Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia, you do have this dichotomy within society, very socially conservative societies that have a strong fundamentalist base, that there, there's, there's such a tension in that society. So the Taliban come from the same society frankly, as the people that Tom Tugendhat would mention, supported the coalition, clinics, uh, women's education, etc. Saudi Arabia, the same. The Wahhabists are from the same society uh, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is driving forward his, uh, his, his um, uh, reform agenda in the mm. country. This is one of the great tensions that 
that it, this is present across all of the Middle East in Muslim countries. Yes. And I suppose the question that most people would want to know the answer to is who controls the Taliban, as it were? I mean, because they have presumably need of financing and funding from, from somewhere. And so do the people who provide their funds for them uh, actually can pull the strings? Well, as we found out, the, the answer is no, really. Uh, the Afghans are, uh, you know, historically an extraordinarily independent uh, set of people, you know, very hardy, you know, tribal hill people. But there's no doubt about it, the Pakistanis have been very complicit in this, you know, they'll deny it, um, but they provide an awful lot of safe havens in Qatar and the federally administered tra uh, uh, treaty area. And, and of course, I'm afraid the drugs trade continues to provide a huge amount of income for, for the Taliban. And uh, as Western support goes, one can imagine the Taliban are going to really up up that uh, by trying to export export opium and heroin uh, around the world. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and the Iranians. There's a lot of people who've really had a great vested interest, Mike, in, in precisely the sort of humiliation that I'm afraid Joe Biden has walked us into in getting the West uh, the West out of that region or or giving it a sort of at least a narrative kick in the, kick in the stomach. Yeah, well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because from Pakistan to Iran uh, to uh, all the way down, I suppose, to um, uh, even Lebanon, uh, it's going to be a message basically that, well, if you just don't do what you're told by the West, don't worry about it uh, because they'll eventually walk away because they're too worried about their own domestic uh, popularity. That, that, is, that is the worry, Mike, and you, you absolutely, because, you know, the, the, the moment we are where we are, that old military expression, mm. this is irrevocable now because of the decisions of precipitous withdrawal uh, and the way the Taliban have been preparing the ground for the last 18 months. You know, going around, this is one of the reasons, the, you know, the Afghan army collapsed because people came along, you know, because, as I say, these are all people from the same communities and said, you've been collaborating with the West, you know, the West are going to leave. My strong advice to you, we know where your wife and children is, is 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 run away when we come come to the town. Otherwise we'll we'll remember this. Yeah. And but eventually the decision was made and they came. Yeah. But we've now got to work out, A, we've got the you know the short-term problem of the whole evacuation of obviously, you know, entitled people on by either Westerners or um uh, or internationals or entitled people. Uh, the second one, of course, is to do what we can to mitigate the horrors of the the Taliban. And I'm not I am not remotely an apologist. Uh, they're driven by a very, very, a very, very unpleasant fundamentalist ideology. The third one, of course, is how we mitigate geopolitically with the Russians, the Chinese, uh, the Iranians, other Islamic terrorists. This perception the West doesn't have the staying power uh, and the uh, the strength to, uh, to to double down mm. on its investment and, well, its, and its, its own security interests. Well, that's right, because the other big question that a lot of people have is, if we were to just leave Afghanistan altogether, because now we've gone back in, I think the Americans have got a couple of thousand troops, we've got maybe a thousand now. Once they all go and, and the evacuation is complete, if you like, um, yep. can we trust that uh, the, the, the Afghanistan that we've seen before will continue to carry on as a kind of a, um, a ring-fenced area, if you like, or will they try and expand um, their ideology and their, and their Sharia law love uh, for the rest of the world, and will they try and take it somewhere else? Well, I don't think the Taliban will. It's quite interesting. The Taliban are very, very much an Afghan nationalist, Pashtun element. What happened, of course, under uh, under the original Taliban, of course, it created a, a sort of safe haven where a lot of jihadists came in from other parts of the world, uh, you know, including Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri. Um, they came from Tunisia, they came from Egypt, they came from Iraq, etc. 
all attracted by the uh, by, by by the ideology of Al Qaeda. And, it's, and I'm sure you well remember, Mike, the whole idea of going into Afghanistan in 2001 was because that is where the origins of the 9/11 plot came from. Mm. Uh, and the Taliban refused to get rid of Al Qaeda Osama bin Laden. No, the, the whole mission then crept horribly after that. So it will be interesting to see if the Taliban do decide to stay within their own boundaries. They can't help but advertise the success. But people like the Chinese now have huge worries about the export of um, Islamic fundamentalism into areas, their Uyghur areas. They've got huge um, uh, commercial uh, interests now in Afghanistan. Um, and of course, nobody else really wants th this to, uh, the, 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 the instability to, 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 to go outwards. But there's no doubt about it for the people of Afghanistan, this is not a good time. Uh, but again, sometimes we need to remind ourselves that the Taliban, they're not an invading army. They are indigenous. They uh, have a lot of support among the Pashtun population and their brand of socially conservative fundamentalist Islam is very attractive to a lot more people than we are inclined to sometimes acknowledge. Mm. And I remember um, during various different sort of um, documentaries that I've watched over the years that uh, the CIA um, and other American intelligence organisations had difficulty in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan for the simple reason that they couldn't really send people in there um, who could get along uh, either with the with the culture or with the food um, uh, or with the lifestyle. And they really had very, very bad intelligence in the entire region. And I mean, until this weekend, Joe Biden thought that the Taliban were a pretty useless fighting force and would never have any chance of overthrowing the Afghan army. Well, this is the remarkable thing, Mike. And one doesn't want to, you know, one should be trying to look forward to trying to see what can we rescue from, from you know, from, from this. Um, but you know, it happened in it, it happened to an extent in Vietnam. Uh, it happened with the Shah of Iran. Uh, it happened with the Iraqi army around Mosul with ISIS. Uh, and it's happened again. We we keep listening or, or, or you know, blowing smoke up our own noses or drinking the Kool-Aid or whatever the latest hackneyed expression is. Um, and, and the inability to get on the ground, to be very honest about the reality of the culture and the attraction of certain elements, or how we are perceived as outsiders, as people trying to corrupt their, uh, you know, their culture or their religion, how people who worked with us are looked as, on as collaborators. You know, you've only got to look back to the end of the Second World War when you know, the, 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 the France was roiled by, by almost a civil war because of the, the stance people had with regard to the German occupying forces. So sometimes it's a lot more nuanced than, than, than some of the uh, headlines give it credit for, mm. where people are trying to score points. So I think the key here, particularly from my perspective as a great transatlanticist, Mike, is although we can put some blame onto Biden, I would hate this to play into the hands of Beijing and Moscow by seeing us enter some war of he, you know, Americans versus the British versus who was to blame, etc. This is a time for working out how we continue to operate together for the you know, the objectives we hold dear. Yes. While while we operate in a very dangerous world. Yes, because I wonder whether anyone really has taken seriously the sort of post Arab Spring landscape if you like because that was a huge time and in your book soldier in the sand you kind of address the different factions that, that were at, uh, at work there because it was sort of a lot of it happened under david cameron's watch and suddenly 
what looked like a good thing turned horribly bad. Uh, and we ended up with Libya uh, in the state that it was in. We ended up with Egypt in the Muslim Brotherhood. We ended up with the Taliban still being in a position to take back Afghanistan. We've seen what's happened in Iran. You know, it seems to me it's a new world order almost, um, which hasn't yet been fully understood. Well, I'd agree entirely, Michael. I would not try to you know, plug my own book, but it really was when we saw Tahrir Square, and I talked to a number of very senior British journalists about this, who, 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 who again, were so focused on, on hearing the story they wanted to hear, which was, this is like the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm. it's young people rising up, it's everybody wanting in the Western society, and there was an element of that. What they didn't realise was how many people were rising up because they didn't like the autocracy, that was stopping them being, you know, exhibiting their Islamism. Yes. Of course, as we saw in Libya, as we saw in Syria, Iraq, there's, there's, it's a much more nuanced story. And we've been very, very poor, I believe, in the West, uh, at, at, at being brutally honest about the, the factors at play in, in some of these countries and, and the continuing hold of, of identity politics, particularly through the prism of of religion and some of it a very very fundamentalist religion because mm. i was talking to uh, somebody who's been in lebanon recently and apparently things in lebanon are so bad um that the syrian refugees who've gone there have now gone back to syria because actually it's a better place to be and and i think the refugee crisis that we're seeing and that we'll continue to see for a long time i suspect has all come from that problem hasn't it well you know this is the tragedy i mean lebanon's another an, another tragedy in the area uh mike and, and quite often at the end of the day, you know, people would like to go to work, they'd like their wives uh, to go shopping or to go to work, their children to go safely to school and to come back safely in the, in, in the, in, in the evening. And, and whoever can offer security, and that is what we had hoped, I suppose, supporting the NSF that we'd contribute to, or in other parts of the world, will, will be welcomed by, um, by, by the local people because most people are just trying to get on with their lives. Uh, and the trouble in, in, in places where you have civil war or unrest or insurgency, uh, where the average people are sort of caught in the crossfire, is that you know, they're, they're, they're really just seeking security. Um, and eventually, whoever's strong enough to come along and provide it, even if they're taking away other elements of freedoms, um, is, I won't say necessarily welcome, but at least there's a certain amount of, thank goodness, you know, as long as I keep my head down now, I can go to work. You know, my wife and children are going to be are going to be safe, relatively safe. Yeah. Um, but that again is is, is 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 it's not a defeatist thing, but it's just saying we just need to recognise the reality of some of this sometimes. Yes, and that is the, the issue, reality. isn't it? That if if you can stabilise many of these countries, you know, people who live there won't be so keen to leave. Uh, and come here, quite frankly, because, I mean, that seems to me to be the only way forward. And, and with your knowledge of, say, the Gulf states, I mean, Oman is an interesting one. I know you spent a lot of time there. Um, very few people really understand the role that they have in kind of keeping the peace in various places and helping one side to talk to another side. I mean, should we be more kind of active in the Gulf in terms of getting them to sort some of these countries out? Well, I don't think it's sorting them out, but I do think, going back to your earlier point, Mike, is... Um, you know, the Gulf remains a hugely important part of the world. Um, the Americans may be going energy independent, but China isn't, hence China's increasing engagement in that region. Um, the Gulf states need stability. They, they've got it to an extent, they're able to buy it. Uh, and a lot of it's been based on the commitment of the Americans and the British. And as you know from my book, you know, I was part of my legacy was being instrumental in establishing Britain's naval base in Bahrain. Mm. Uh, so they will be nervous watching this withdrawal from Afghanistan. They were nervous about the Americans 
withdrawing from Iraq? Are we looking like reliable long-term allies? Would the Russians be better? They don't bring any conditionality. Would the Chinese be better? So I, I think you know, the Gulf has a huge role to play uh, in all sorts of areas. And, and, and it's one that we know well, and we should be you know, absolutely continuing to give them the, the, the confidence that their security is assured, under which, of course, an awful lot of reform movements that we all applaud are taking place. Indeed. And if you were to look around um, the regions that we're talking about, Sir Simon, um, in terms of the biggest threat to us right now, in terms of, you know, either militarily, ISIS seems to have kind of disappeared for the moment. I don't know whether it will come back. Um, but I mean, where would you say the biggest threat to, to sort of Western civilization is coming from at the moment? Well, well I mean, they're sort of identified. There is, you know, revanchist Russia. You know, we talk about that. I don't think it's an existential threat, but it will capitalize on okay, you know, events like the, the, those happening in Afghanistan now to try and drive wedges between America, the Western states, and within the Western Europe. China is clearly rising up strongly, particularly in you know, the South Pacific, which has drawn America off. Iran has not gone away yet. Iran will take great heart from, again, the Americans. At one stage, we had a big American presence in Iraq a big American presence in Afghanistan, really, really, you know, encircling Iran. Those have both gone now. And Iran has had a sort of free run to the Mediterranean through its sort of sheer compatriots, you know, Baghdad, Damascus, mm. uh, Beirut. Islamic terrorism, and, and, and of course, the nuclear, you know, the nuclear file hasn't gone away there. And Islamist terrorism, I'm afraid, will, will, will undoubtedly be catalyzed or encouraged by the success of the Taliban, even if the Taliban themselves aren't a global threat, because as I said, there are the more national, regional, uh, very, very much a, 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 a sort of a manifestation of, of, uh, of Afghanistan politics. Mm. But it will definitely encourage uh, Islamists, you know, many of whom do live in our communities around Western Europe and America, uh, to, to be perhaps more aggressive again. Yeah. Um, so, whether that forms an existential threat, but it certainly forms mm. uh, a threat to security. So final question for you, Sir Simon. Boris Johnson is having a, a sort of special session of Parliament tomorrow. If you could uh, get him on the phone now and tell him what he should be doing next, what should he be doing? <laughs> well, as I say, I, I think the key is not, you know, huge recriminations. Um, I keep reminding people that, you know, the, the, the safe, secure environment that I've lived in all my life has been underpinned by the American commitment. This is not a time for recriminations. It's not a time for uh, putting pressure on the transatlantic link. He's absolutely right to focus on the current crisis. We've got British soldiers on the ground and British nationals on the ground. We need to get them out. We've got a responsibility to entitled people. We need to exercise that. And we need to do what we can to mitigate the Taliban's influence within the region and externally. And I think we need, now need to mitigate actually the damage that we might have done by this to uh, our reputation and credibility as the, as inverted commas, the West. Yeah. And I really begin to focus on where we go now, because I'm afraid as a result of the actions recently, it, it's, it's irrevocable the takeover by, by the Taliban. Yes. This could have been better managed, but I think recriminations is not the answer. Let's get some positive, uh, positive uh, uh, objectives and a plan of action to go forward. OK. So Simon Mel, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Author of Soldier in the Sand, a great book. Go and get it, have a look at it, read it, learn about the areas of the world which are now uh, completely 
dominating really um, international politics, international relations and what happens next. We'll be covering of course tomorrow's uh, debate in Parliament uh, as it happens. It will happen live during this show. Uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister hasn't had much to say for himself today. Um, Dominic Raab was on with Julie Hartley Brewer. He was talking about getting all the people out of Afghanistan but of course Tom Tugendhat who was also on earlier was saying that he's under the impression that many people are not going to get out because some of them have already been executed by the Taliban. It's a pretty ghastly and grim situation. Uh, we'll keep you updated with it as soon as anything else happens right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And now it is time, without further ado, to say a very good afternoon to Angela Levin. Hello, Angela. Hello. How are you? Good, yes, thank you. And you? Very well indeed. Very good to speak to you. I mean, we've been rather obsessed with Afghanistan over the last couple of days, I suppose, and yeah. not surprisingly, it's terrible what's uh, what's unfolding there. Um, yes. Prince Harry's been talking to uh, some military veterans, um, some of those people that he used to serve with. What's he been saying? Well, he's been saying uh, we've got to reach out to each other and comfort and help each other. But it sounds to me one of these sort of floaty sort of sentences that doesn't really mean much, but sounds good. Mm. Uh, what does he mean by that? How are people going to do that? Is he going to make arrangements for people to get together? You know, it's just one of these sort of fluffy statements, in my view. Yes. It's very I mean, sort of very Megan-esque, isn't it? Yes. Actually, the, the, the all the comment that he made struck me as being written by Megan. She mm. has her own inimitable style, which is fair enough. But uh, Harry has most of the lines written for him. But um, I think he, he also does genuinely want to keep up the morale of all the uh, wounded soldiers, men and women, uh, for the Invictus Games, which he is um, partly responsible for. Yeah. Um, and that should be happening next spring in Holland. And... Uh, this year, it was uh, obviously couldn't take place because of COVID. So he's very keen that it does take place. And he was very supportive about these guys and women by saying, you know, don't be disappointed. Don't be downhearted. Practice more and you'll be even better. Now, I think that's a very good statement. It's not floppy. It's not meaningless, mm. really, if you look at it word by word. And that sounded more like Harry last year, but... Um, if he'd have said something like that with uh, a positive, um, practical thing that they could do, I think it would have sounded much better. Yes, because he's been criticised, hasn't he? And I suppose it's a bit difficult to be Harry these days because whatever he says, he gets criticised. But um, he's been criticised for not mentioning Joe Biden's speech because his statement came out after Joe Biden's speech. Um, and he says, uh, and, and some are saying, well, he should have had something to say about uh, the President of the United States abandoning the Afghans that he fought alongside, particularly some of the British interpreters as well, um, who our own government have said that they won't be able to rescue. Uh, and very many of them perhaps have already been killed. Yes, I think there may have been quite a lot of thought going into that, uh, even for Harry, because he did start supporting Biden and the Democratic Party, mm. and he got huge criticism for doing that, both in this country and in America, because they were saying, who do you think you are? You're not American. Don't tell us who to vote for. Don't tell us what to do. Yes. So I think he was in between a rock and a hard place, whereas if he'd said something, people would criticise. If he doesn't say something, people criticise him. So I think it was probably better that he... Well, I would have liked to... A, a more practical comment, but that he just sticks to what he is involved with before he takes 
American identity. Yes. And one of the things that I would imagine will have been a topic of conversation, a big topic of conversation uh, in the old Montecito mansion, uh, would have been uh, the birthday party thrown by Barack Obama over in um, uh, Cape Cod, I think it was, over in Martha's Vineyard, uh, at his yeah. big uh, palatial spread there, because almost all of Meghan's friends were invited, including Gail King, Oprah Winfrey, um, George Clooney, a couple of other people, all invited, but not Harry and Meghan. And apparently, because uh, the, the reason being that, that, uh, that Barack and Michelle Obama say that they want to be seen to be siding with uh, Prince William, because he's the heir to the throne, rather than sort of seem, seeming to be too cosy with Harry and Meghan? Well, I don't think it's quite so um, straightforward. I think they very much like Prince William and Catherine. And if you remember, there were some lovely pictures of the four of them with little Prince George when mm. he was only about three in his dressing gown and, you know, shaking hands with Barack Obama, very, very shy. And, and they just loved him. I mean, he's a very lovable looking he child. And mm. They were they were very cosy with him uh, and they liked that. But I, I think that actually they're much more concerned about the value of the family, and that you can have an argument with your family, but you don't go on and on and on and on. We've had three very nasty attempts at snarling at his family, including his 95-year-old grandmother. Mm. And yeah. um, uh, uh, we've got more to come. We've got an extra chapters on finding freedom um, coming out. Oh, yes. When's that, uh, when's that expected? Coming out, I think, the end of August. Right. Um, then we've got Harry's memoir, whatever that means, um, that was supposed to be ghostwritten by somebody very famous. And now we hear that Meghan is actually also writing it. Yeah. I don't know if she's putting herself in that, but um, <laughs> she's she's obviously likes to be involved. Um, and uh, so, you know, and it, it's enough. How many times are you going to attack your family? Mm. And I think both... Um, the Obamas really do feel very strongly like that. And and also, uh, Mrs. Obama said to uh, Meghan early on, um, don't worry about stepping back from your work. Sometimes you have to give way, let your husband do what's important if he's got that sort of a job, and, and then you can catch up later. So she really does believe in supporting, mm. not just thinking me, me, me. Um, I think that's more likely to have been the reason, but it's very shaming for them. They won't like but, it, though. Um, I mean, I can imagine, I was, I was saying last week, I think, that she'll be sort of, you know, proverbially kicking the cat around the house and he'll probably be keeping out of her way, I would imagine. Yes, I'm sure she'll blame Harry. <laughs> Absolutely right. Now, a story in the papers this morning in The Sun, uh, the Queen is to remain at Balmoral for the summer break, despite concerns for her safety after a staff member tested positive for COVID. Now, I mean, I know normally we would not think of this as a serious story particularly, but because of her age, clearly, you know, she'll have been jabbed and she'll have had the vaccine, but, but she is, you know, quite elderly now and she wouldn't want to have risk getting that. Yes, um, I don't know how protected she is with within uh, Windsor Castle, but I think that they were. Well, she's sure in Balmoral, that, isn't she? Balmoral, sorry, in Balmoral. I'm I'm sure that they will will check on all the people who've been in contact with a person who's um, got the COVID, um, and then see if she's been in touch with any of them. Mm. I think it's a very small group of people who look after her, and I don't think they would put her in um, any danger. And if she was in, in contact, then I, I think that she um, 
will have doctors popping in every day watching and looking after mm. her quite right too. Yes, absolutely. And of course, Andrew's there as well, as far as we know, or at least he was there last week. I don't know whether he's come back. Um, but that would have been a bit awkward for her as well, wouldn't it? I don't think it is awkward. I mean, she really does love Andrew. And I think that she would have been very pleased to have him there. And also his ex-wife, Fergie, who's mm. been invited for the first time in 25 years. Amazing. Edinburgh never wanted her there and um, Eugenie's up there with her husband and little boy mm. and, and I think she would be very pleased this is a time she wants the family with her and you know we've heard that she's agreed to underwrite any of his legal fees which is um, extraordinary really. I mean, well his, particularly if he I... loses the, the, the lawsuit and he ends up having to pay some millions and millions of pounds in compensation. Yes. Well, I didn't know whether that is a compensation or whether it's just the legal fees. That wasn't actually quite clear. Mm. What we don't know is how much Prince Andrew is worth. I mean, he's only got twenty thousand um, uh, for from the navy to keep him going. So, um, well, he's obviously he got must, something other than that to live off. Otherwise, he's obviously that... got an awful lot. But uh, people who are really quite good at finding out about money and the royals still don't know. They say mm. it's a very murky situation which means it's it's not things are invested in all sorts of countries via this country and that country mm. and you don't really know but I think she will support Andrew um and today the comment was of course that he's still a very interest uh, interesting person I think that's a, a, a step down that we've heard from America they still find him interesting but if he's not going to talk um, and claims diplomatic immunity. I don't know where that leaves him because the public will find that appalling that he hasn't actually yeah. done something. If he's innocent, he should make statements and he should fight it, is the general feeling. Um, and and uh, Prince Charles will be very cross yeah. about this because he's never liked him and doesn't want him ever to come back. Right. I don't think he will ever be to hold any of of the um, to work for any of the charities that he used to. No. I don't want his name on the top of the note. I, no, I don't see how he can possibly do anything in public life no. and, uh, until no. and at such time as he actually is cleared of, of all of this stuff. And the only way to do that uh, is, as you say, for him to speak. And I think his problem is going to be if he does agree to, say, be subpoenaed uh, for some kind of testimony to be given, even if it's given in a deposition on this side of the Atlantic, He's then kind of opening up the can of worms, isn't he? Because he can then be asked all sorts of things. He'll be under oath. He won't be allowed to, to lie. Um, and it could lead him into, into a very difficult place. And similarly, if he was to go and take part in the court case, I mean, that would just be a circus, wouldn't it? You imagine? Yes, I think that would be very awkward. But he doesn't have to say anything and the court case will still go ahead. It doesn't need him there. No. Um, they can actually make their decision on whether he's guilty or not without him yeah. and, and demand the um, damages, which, as you say, can go up to, I think it's £36 million. Pounds. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've worked in America and there's no end to the number of millions you can just add on uh, for compensation if you've been hurt or uh, injured in some, in some way uh, or, yeah. or traumatised, you know. Yes. So it's all um, very, very complicated. But they, I do believe and have read that the court case can be put back and put back for five years, by which time the Queen will be 100. Yes. Um, and, and it might never, ever happen. It's one of those things that 
gets started and goes on yes. and, and the lawyers fight each other and um, up the costs and, and nothing really happens. And I think the public will get very, very angry about this because why should somebody who is royal um, get away with just mm. not saying anything? No, exactly right. And I mean, it is perverse, isn't it? Because it was pointed out to me um, a couple of weeks ago, actually, that it was Fergie originally, his ex-wife, who, who had the loan from uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And it was that kind of connection in the first place that kind yeah. of, you know, bound them together, if you like, before Prince Andrew went to visit him uh, in New York, or before all of that, you know, he loaned Fergie money so that she could continue to uh, not go bankrupt. Yeah, well, she was virtually bankrupt, wasn't she? Yeah. She overspends and she admits that. She's not very good at handling money. And she was desperate to get a sum of money. I think it was about 18000 like if that, I remember, yeah. um, from Epstein. And he gave it to him. Well, that's very dangerous because there is a link. Nothing's for nothing. You then owe that person yes. something. Um, and he enjoyed it because he was invited to all the parties in Sandringham, um, and, and it, you know, you're getting yourself in a very, very tricky situation if you find mm. that that person has behaved badly. And once he'd been accused of being a child molester and found guilty... Well, he then, was convicted. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just an accusation. Yeah. I mean, he was a no, no, convicted exactly. paedophile, effectively. Yeah, and Prince Andrew should then have stepped back. Of course he should. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense at all. But this idea that he would claim diplomatic immunity, I think that would backfire horribly on him as well. Yes, absolutely. I didn't think he could. I know the Queen can have diplomatic ability, um, uh, but not but not Prince Andrew. But perhaps if you are a working royal abroad, you can do it that way. I don't know how that works. Well, so. apparently, according to what I've seen today, um, it dates back to the time when he was a trade envoy. What, the, what their argument would be is that in 2001, uh, which is when Virginia claims that he sexually assaulted her, he was actually a trade envoy which is a position that holds diplomatic immunity. So it's not that he's got it now, but he had it then. Yes. It's all a bit, well, it's all a bit sort of, uh, shall we say, tangential. Yes. Yes, it's all very difficult. And I think the lawyers are going to be the ones who are going to look back and find court cases going back a very long time to prove each other, to prove to each other that one is wrong and they're right. Um, and it's just going to be a complete mess and a disaster and i don't think it would do any good long term for the royal family to have somebody accused of rape and and then just try to keep him hidden um in the background riding no. his horse around and, and in addition as you said to the u.s prosecutors saying that uh, he's now a person of interest the scotland yard detectives have also said i think that they're going to have another look at the allegations haven't they Yes, they have. Yes, Cressida Dix has said that. Um, and and we shall have to see what she comes up with. But I don't know if she can go very far because it's not a criminal case. So um, I don't know how very much how, how she can actually uh, comment and make decisions on that. No, I mean, we should also say that he, of course, strenuously denies all of these allegations. But I suppose in this febrile time in which we live, Angela, if some uh, young woman makes an allegation about an older man sexually assaulting her no matter when it was um, the police i would imagine feel duty bound to look into it even if it's yes, not I mean, a criminal action at the, the moment this is one of the good things to come out of um, me too yeah uh, where women who have been abused mm. way back 
can actually um, take some sort of comfort that there will be a charge. Yes. Um, because I do think that it affects some people for the rest of their lives. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and, like and absolutely. And so I think the police are sort of duty bound to treat it as though it might be a criminal um, uh, investigation mm. at the beginning and then just check it out. Mm. 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 So yeah. as far as uh, the timing of all of that is concerned, it's still very much up in the air, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, as I said, it could take five years to come to fruition. And um, the lawyers can actually keep on putting it back with all sorts of excuses and difficulties and issues and challenges. Um, they said one of the things that they're going to say is they've got no jurisdiction in the UK yeah. to make that um, uh, for, for somebody from uh, no jurisdiction in the USA to make it for somebody in the UK. Mm. So yeah. if that is proven uh right or wrong uh that, that will affect the timing enormously yes absolutely well i mean it's certainly not going away anytime soon that's for, for sure um angela thank you very much indeed angela levin royal biographer there talking to us about uh, the whole host of things including the latest with prince andrew which is really still um, a terrible situation a terrible kind of stain hanging over both him and the royal family really because he is still uh, after years and years and years five years i think uh, Virginia uh, Gouffray's um, the lawyers have said they've tried to get him to speak to them. Uh, he hasn't. The FBI similarly have tried to get him to speak to them. He hasn't. Now the word is that he might decide uh, that he's going to imbue some kind of diplomatic immunity so he doesn't have to speak to anybody. And I don't think that's going to look too good for him either, is it? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.